Welcome to China Takes Over the World. This show explores China's growing global influence and geostrategic competition with the United States. With us today is Richard McGregor, senior fellow of the Lowy Institute in Australia. Richard is also the former bureau chief for the Financial Times, Beijing and Shanghai, and the author of one of my all-time favorite books on China, The Party: The Secret World of China's Communist Rulers. Richard, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. For much of the past decade, many in the West have feared, and many in China have hoped that China would dominate the world in the 21st century. As it turns out, China did take over the world in 2020, but unintentionally by bequeathing the globe with the COVID-19 virus. The disease has wreaked havoc everywhere, according to the World Health Organization. There are now over nine million confirmed cases and nearly five hundred thousand confirmed deaths across the globe. More than two hundred countries have been affected. Richard, you've been covering and watching China for quite some time now. Before twenty twenty, did you ever expect that a virus originating from China would immobilize the world like this? I certainly didn't think so to this extent, but I must say, if you looked at A lot of people talking about political risk in China for a long time.、Uh, they have often talked about pandemics,、um, but I think people have maybe come—I don't know whether complacent is the right word—but after SARS in 2003,、uh, Chinese took a long time to get on top of that. But once they got on top of it,、um, uh, they did so quite ruthlessly. But not only that; in theory, they set up a playbook. Uh, with you know within the system with local officials、um, all the way to Beijing to handle the next outbreak of some kind of virus, and、uh, I would have hoped or expected that would have worked, but as we saw with COVID nineteen, it didn't. In fact, the system set up post SARS, it failed. Yeah, it failed right, indeed, at, indeed at levels, and、um, that's、uh, a big reason、uh, why we are where we are today. Right. Well, China is absolutely determined not to be blamed for the coronavirus. So it has sent masks and other personal protective equipment to the U.S., Europe, Africa, and neighbors in Asia. It has even sent ventilators to New York. Do you think Beijing's mask diplomacy? Or PPE diplomacy is working, and is it generating the type of goodwill? And gratitude that China、um, was hoping for. You know, to be honest, it's probably a, a mixed picture.、Um, COVID nineteen in China itself, I think, is also a mixed picture. You know, I kind of divide it into two stages. There's the opening outbreak, and we saw what happened there. There was a, an initial cover up and all sorts of bureaucratic infighting, which resulted in the virus spreading further and faster within China and then overseas. And then China、uh, actually did get on top of infections. I think, no matter what people say about Chinese statistics, there's absolutely no way that you know Xi Jinping would be out and about in parts of China if the system hadn't got on on top of infections. And so we had, if you like, the worst of the Chinese system, and then the brutal strengths of the Chinese system,、uh, one after the other. Following that. Uh, the system switched immediately to diplomacy, mass diplomacy,、uh, whatever you call it, and I would say it's a mixed picture there as well.、Um, I think it's gone much worse than it should have.、Uh, 
uh, uh, for the Chinese. They could have done this in a low profile and a generous fashion without demanding thanks at every turn. But I think there's also no doubt that for some countries, uh, the Chinese donations were welcome. We can look at uh, some of the opinion polls in Europe, in Serbia, Bulgaria, Italy and the like. Plus, uh, it's shown China's strengths in manufacturing. Let me give you one figure, which I think uh, came from The Economist. I think China used to make about uh, 10 million masks a day previously, about half of global production. Within a month, they'd ramped that up to 120 million. Um, and, you know, nobody else can do that. So China right. just has this enormous state capacity that the way they, you know, impose it on other people doesn't always win them thanks. Right. In some cases, they have outright demanded gratitude and they've even drafted the, the way that that, you know, the foreign countries are supposed to express it. Now, as you said, um, China now seems to have the virus largely contained while the United States continues to be hobbled by the disease. At the moment, America has over 2 million cases and over 120,000 deaths, more than any other country, including China. And as a result, Beijing is now displaying a fair amount of triumphalism. Do you believe that the pandemic has, in fact, strengthened China, at least vis-a-vis -vis the United States? Well, you'd have to say yes, and it's pretty surprising that's the case. When you think, go back to about January, February, China looked to be on its knees. We had lots of stories about China's Chernobyl, about the whole system melting down. Uh, look at where we are now in June. Um, you know, China does have another outbreak in Beijing, but they've acted quickly to try and get on top of that. And then you look at the US, where it varies from state to state, obviously, but we've had a surge in cases um, <clears throat> recently, particularly places like Texas and the like. And that's just a disaster for the US uh, on many levels. And as I frankly it's a disaster for American allies as well. Um, you know, China, competition with China, and you know this, it's not just about, it's about many things. It's about trade, it's about, uh, it's regional, uh, it's geopolitical, it's economic, it's technological, but for the Chinese, it's also a contest of systems. And so in terms of internal propaganda, you know, they're gonna go to their people, they are going to their people and saying, well, look, our system worked, it was tough, but look at America, uh, it's not working. And that's, that's, um, that's an invidious comparison for the US to have to endure. Indeed, and, and in the early days of the pandemic, the Chinese government, um, certainly on the local and regional level, covered up the nature and seriousness of the coronavirus. It suppressed information in sort of typical communist fashion. It, jailed or disappeared domestic journalists who were investigating the outbreak and then it outright lied um, in the state media. Now, um, despite the fact that it is now doing better or appears to be handling the outbreak better than Western countries, especially the U.S., do you think that COVID-19 has exposed an inherent defect in the authoritarian and repressive nature of the Chinese system, at least to the people in China? Um, and are you seeing any signs at all that the pandemic has rendered the Chinese government or the Communist Party more vulnerable do domestically? 
Well, I would have said that back in February, March. I don't think I'd say that now. Um, the way you describe the outbreak is accurate. You know, secrecy is a feature, uh, not a bug of the Chinese system, uh, as it is of all communist systems. But on top of that, uh, China does have some performance legitimacy when you look at the, you know, the stewardship of the economy over 20 years or so. I think, though, you know, <clears throat> this is not over yet. Uh, the COVID era is not over yet, quite apart from little outbreaks that all countries will have to manage uh, until we get a vaccine. But for China, they're about to go through the probably the most sustained economic downturn since the late 1970s. Um, that's not easy to manage. That's new ground for them. They've got the tools to do it. But, you know, I think the US, if the US does get on top of uh, the virus, the economy will snap back. The US has great inherent strengths. Uh, and the US, of course, has been in and out of recessions before. Uh, let's see how China, China handles that. I think that's a really significant challenge for Xi Jinping. We are speaking with Richard McGregor, senior fellow at the Lowy Institute in Australia. His latest book is Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, and the Fate of U.S. Power in the Pacific Century. Now, Richard, U.S. lawmakers across the political spectrum have been furious with China about the coronavirus outbreak, and they've been repeatedly calling for some form of punishment for Beijing. And proposals in Congress have ranged from suing China to ending America's reliance on China for the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals. What type of measures do you think would actually hurt China or serve as proper punishment? Well, I don't think suing China is going to go anywhere. I don't think the claim for reparations is going to go anywhere. There's many countries in different parts of the world who might have claims against other countries in that respect. So I'm respectfully not going to go down that road. Well, well this, would be, um, this would be potentially letting American citizens sue China, uh, which is something that the U.S. government in the past has not always been supportive of. But in this case, given the level of anger at, at China, there are some voices in Congress that are willing to, to entertain that option. I guess so, um, uh, yeah, but how do you enforce a judgment? That's one thing. And I guess just look, if we're talking about the US, we could be talking about many countries. Some US citizens might want to see their own government's uh, handling of this. Um, so I just don't think that's going to be very fruitful. I think the, it's certainly going to um, uh, uh, heighten uh, debate about the issue of what we call decoupling. In other words, the US and Chinese economies decoupling. The US, I think, can pretty easily uh, ramp up or source from other countries, sort, you know, uh, PPE uh, equipment uh, and also uh, pharmaceuticals. It might take some time. But when it comes down to it, that's a very small part of the US economy. I think this is going to, going to sort of put more focus on bigger issues, on the technological competition, on the Huawei's of this world, on semiconductors and the like. Um, and that's where I think the big game is, not, not lawsuits uh, from Americans against China.
Mm-hmm. Now, Australia has actually called for an independent global inquiry of the origins of the coronavirus pandemic, and this culminated in an effort where over a hundred member countries of the WHO, China included, signed on, signed signed on to establish an evaluation of the outbreak. Now, the Trump administration sees the WHO as Overly solicitous of the Chinese government, do you believe that the WHO could properly hold China accountable, especially in an inquiry that China China has agreed to? Yeah, a, a, a difficult and interesting question. You <clears> know, <throat> Australia has a bit of a different view of the WHO from the US because Australia works very closely with the WHO in Asia and particularly the Pacific in places like Papua New Guinea and the like. So I think Australia wants to keep working with the WHO there. As to an inquiry, you know, it's difficult to see um, uh, how far that will go because the inquiry, you know, there was a big fight over having the inquiry. Then there was a bit of a struggle over the terms of that inquiry. In the end, the uh, World Health Organization Assembly agreed to have quote unquote a comprehensive inquiry. So when Australia heard that, we thought that's good. That includes China. And when China heard the word comprehensive, they thought that's good. That includes the rest of the world. <laughs> so, so it, it's it's really um, you know going to be a bit of a slog this inquiry, uh, and China, you know, gets its back up over sovereignty, as its back up over foreign criticism of any kind. Um, it's you know been laying out in some very long articles and speeches by the foreign minister Wang Yi, their record in handling this. So that's that's a fight yet to come, I think.、Mm. Chinese President Xi Jinping has been far more aggressive than his recent throwing China's weight around the world. What do you think he ultimately wants for China? Well, I guess we take him at, at his word.、Um, the, you know, the China Dream, which, by the way, doesn't sort of. Uh, peak or reach、uh, is not realised until 2049. This is a long-term plan that includes、uh, securing the South China Sea. It probably secure,、uh, includes the East China Sea and areas disputed with Japan.、Uh, most importantly,、uh, it includes Taiwan,、um, and that's just on top of other global entanglements that China might be involved with. Uh, with India,、uh, with the sustenance、uh, and extension of the Belt and Road,、um, moulding China,、uh, international institutions like the UN to make them more friendly or more reflective of China's、uh, priorities.、Um, that's what he wants, and that's what he set out. And I guess in the short term,、uh, you know, Xi Jinping is very unlikely to step down in 2022. He hasn't named a successor. Let's say he has five or ten more years in office、uh, after that. What does he want his immediate legacy to be? Quite apart from the targets he set for 2035 and 2049, that's an interesting thing to contemplate. And I would have thought he'd have to have some sort of achievement on Taiwan, perhaps the opening of formal political talks for unification and the like. And that, of course, will require China to put Taiwan under enormous pressure. Because there's no appetite for unification in Taiwan itself, as you know.、Um, so that's 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 one thing that I'm trying to keep a close eye on and think about. Now, all of these places you mentioned—the East China Sea, the South China Sea, 
Taiwan, etc. These are all places in China's back backyard. Do you believe that all China wants is to supplant U.S. leadership in Asia, or does it have ambitions to um, to kind of take over the existing order of the world? Well, I, I think it's you can't just say it's about the region because if China supplants the U.S. leadership in Asia, then that has global. Implications to start with. You know, this is the center of the global economy. That naturally gives you influence elsewhere in Europe, um, you know, South America uh, and the like. Uh, and it's not easy to supplant the U.S. in Asia. It obviously depends on what the U.S. itself does. But if you think about this, um, we think about. Uh, we mentioned a couple of issues there. China has. Uh, territorial disputes or disputes over the sea boundaries with um, uh, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, Brunei, um, uh, and Malaysia. So it's not so easy for you know if America says goodbye and China can't, China can't step very easily into America's shoes uh, because it has so much skin in the game, whereas America. There's no territorial disputes of any dimension in the area. So, um, you know, I think it is about Asia first, but I think Asia has global uh, ramifications. If other countries see the US stepping back in Asia, then its pledges elsewhere in the world won't be taken as seriously. So I guess it's about both. Right, and let's not forget that just recently, China had some military clashes with India over territory territorial dispute, disputes as well. Um, yes. Of course, of course, those are land disputes, not the not uh, maritime disputes that um, like it has with uh, a number of the Southeast Asian countries. Well, Richard, thank you very much for chatting with us. Thank you for having me and good luck with the podcast. <laughs> Thanks very much. This is China Takes Over the World and I am Yingma.